Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So, tonight we're talking about some big, big, big topics. Heaven, hell, judgment, death, purgatory, all these things. Um, You're going to hear a lot tonight. Um, Sorry, I'm sending Summer the link. (laughs) Oh, like I hear myself. That was weird. Hi, Summer. (laughs) Tonight you're going to hear a lot. I got a lot of quotes. Oh, do you have the quotes, the packet? You had one job. <laughs> I will go get them. Goat. <laughs> I will be back. Okay, so the um, tonight is going to be like a lot of quotes from C.S. Lewis. You're going to have to bear with me just because there's just there's so many things that I wanted to quote from him that uh, that didn't make it into the presentation, and I put them on a separate sheet for you to read uh, this, you know, later on, right? So I don't know anybody besides C.S. Lewis, and maybe a few others, who have really written as beautifully, or, uh, yeah, just as eloquently as he has about these realities, heaven, hell, death, judgment, all of that. Um, so yeah, you're going to get a lot of C.S. Lewis tonight. And also, you're going to get a little bit from this book that I read uh, just recently. It's called The Journey of Desire. The Journey of Desire. It is, it's up there. It's like in my top 10, I would say. It's by John Eldridge. It is extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. So you're going to get two whopper quotes from this tonight. Um, But mostly, C.S. Lewis. Just like Chris always just basically quotes Father Richard John Newhouse, I quote C.S. Lewis, right? So that's how how this is going to work. All right, so in, uh, I teach in the school. I go over to the school and I teach fifth through eighth grade once a week. And um, some of the classes I've got, like, content that I bring to the class. Some of the classes is just more, like, question and answer. They bring questions to me. And um, those classes are really fun. And most of the kids, so often, their questions have to do with... There's, there's general themes that kind of that circulate again and again. It doesn't matter when, you know, I'm teaching. But it's... The kids have so many questions about these topics. About heaven and hell. And, like, who's going to heaven? How do you go to heaven? Can someone... Like, how do you go to hell? Is anybody like, do we know if anybody's in hell? Can you leave hell when you go to hell? What is purgatory? Like, is purgatory this big waiting room? Like, what do you do in heaven? Is heaven going to be boring? Because it kind of sounds boring. And and this is the big one. Can animals go to heaven? And I always tell them, only dogs. So, (laughs) just kidding, just kidding. But seriously, yeah. I mean, like, can you imagine cats in heaven? My God, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, cat lovers. I was, so. What's that? Yeah, there are lines. Yeah, lions. that's right. Where do they get the dogs? I love dogs. Well, if you spell dog backwards, it's God. So, <laughs> so, boom, roasted. <laughs> so, <laughs> I so the church has never actually weighed in on whether or not you know animals go to heaven. It's not an official thing, right? You got Saint Thomas Aquinas who says no. Saint Bonaventure says yes. Both of them are doctors of the church. Both of them were contemporaries. Both were brilliant. <laughs> And I was more on the Thomas Aquinas side of things for a while. And then uh, our family's uh, first dog died a number of years ago. His name was Moses. Moses died, and I very quickly uh, updated my position on the issue. 
like Moses for sure is leading all the Jewish dogs into heaven, right? He's splitting that Red Sea. He's let my people go, right? Moses has got to be in heaven. All right, so here's the thing. It's so hard to speak authoritatively on these issues, but we're going to start right here with what we absolutely know. You can write this down. You can take this to the bank. What we absolutely know for sure is that uh, you're going to die. You're going to die. You are absolutely going to die. Every single person you know is going to die. Um, this kind of weirded me out yesterday. You know, yesterday was two, like the wild Tuesday, right? 2-22-22 on a Tuesday. Pretty wild, right? The next time that happens is going to be 200 years from now. Isn't that kind of crazy? Like every single person who's alive right now, and probably the next generation, they're all going to be dead. When the, That's just crazy. And the next time it happens after that is 20,000 years later. That's really weird. You don't seem to be as impressed about it as I was. <laughs> all right, anyway. All right, so we are all going to die. That's it, guys. That's all I had to say tonight. I hope you have a good night. Okay, all right. What's weird about all this, right, is that there's a finite number to everything that you're going to experience in life. There's a finite number of blinks you're going to take. There's a finite number of breaths you're going to breathe. Everyone take one in. Hold it. Let it out. That's one less. You're never going to get that one back. Finite number of hugs. Finite number of movies. Finite number of masses. Finite number of communions. Finite number of going to confession. Finite number of dinners and Chick-fil-A sauce and all those things. Finite number. I was, Father Joe and I were talking about this not too long ago, but like, what really made me sad, what makes me very sad, is there's a finite number of books that I'm going to get to read in this life. There's too many books. There's too many good books. Amazon Prime has really destroyed me. Um, I have more unread books on my shelf than I have read books because I just like, I'm a notorious book starter, not a book finisher. Yeah. So it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. There's only two guaranteed moments in our life. It's the now and the hour of our death, right? That's how we prayed in the Hail Mary. Right? Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou among women. Blessed are thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. That at a certain point in our lives, every one of our lives, those two moments are going to be the same moment. Which was really striking to me a few years ago. I was still in the seminary and I was praying at the bedside of this guy who was dying. And that never really occurred to me before. There I am. I'm like sitting by this guy. He's got the death rattle in his chest. He's preparing to meet the Lord. And I'm the only one sitting at his bedside. I'm praying the rosary, and I'm just, you know, going through it kind of rotely. And then it just occurred to me, I'm like, oh, my gosh, very soon for this guy, those moments are going to be the same moment. And about an hour after I finished praying the rosary, it was. He went home to the Lord, now and at the hour of our death. And the thing is, in our modern world, we live so far removed from death in many ways. Like, unless you're like an undertaker or like, I don't know, like, by and large, most of us don't see death up close and personal as an everyday normal reality. We push death away from us as much as possible. I mean, just like, who are they? Like, yes, there are people who butcher their own food, but they are very few and far between. Most of us get our food prepackaged, nicely cellophane wrapped from the grocery store, right? Like, I, I personally don't even like food with like meat, like on the bone, because I just don't like being reminded that this was part of a living animal at one point. Like, don't chicken breasts grow on trees? Isn't that how that works, right? <laughs> like, I don't like all the connective tissue and like, ugh, just give me a chicken nugget. All right. <laughs> but yeah, like, we live so far away from death. We don't see it up close and personal. We put 
folks into nursing homes. We put people die in nursing homes, hospice centers, and hospitals. They, they don't die in our homes by and large, right? That's one of the things that was so beautiful for my own family. My grandpa, two years ago, um, he died in my parents' home. Like, not connected to any machines, just him in the bed. Like, it was one of those amazing things. Like, as a priest, you spend a lot of time at the bedside of the dying, at hospitals, nursing homes, hospice facilities, and, like, people are connected to all sorts of machines. And, but, like, seeing my own grandpa just lying there in his pajamas on the guest bed of my parents' house, going home to meet the Lord. Every single one of us, like will be confronted with death in, a, in like sooner rather than later. Like in our, our own parish, like got a funeral this Friday for an amazing man, Dominic Sorrent. Funeral came in. I got a funeral Saturday morning, funeral on Tuesday. Like death's really convenient. Like every single one of us, every single one of us. And if you've been there at the bedside of someone who's dying, you know how powerful that moment is. It's one of those very thin places between this world and the next world. Talk to nurses, you know, who, uh, you know, round on those floors where people are dying. They've got crazy stories. It's a very thin place. It's so profound. It's so beautiful. It's so painful. It's so every other emotion. Most people throughout human history, except for us moderns, were constantly confronted by death except us, right? This is why we have this obsession with youth in our world, in our culture especially. It's why like the makeup industry and the hair dyeing industry and the, 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 the plastic surgery industry is, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry, right? Because we don't want to see our aging bodies, right? Body parts that used to look this way now look this way. Hair that used to look this way is now gone, right? Like, it is, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry. Like every, I noticed this on vacation. I think I plucked it out because it, it freaked me out that I found a gray hair in my beard, right? I know, I'm telling you, I turned 33, this parish, it's really stressed me out. <laughs> a single gray whisker. Like, get out of here, Blink, right? Every gray hair, every wrinkle, every pockmark, every, everything. It's, it's, a, it's a prophetic sign that's saying, you are headed to the grave. You're going to be earthworm food, right? Like you are going to the grave. You're going to the grave. Uh, here's the thing, though. We avoid death. We, we hide from death. We run from death. But the thing is, unless we reckon with death, we're never going to learn how to live rightly, right? We have to reckon with the facticity of our death. And this is not a macabre thing. This is, this is the most practical thing. It's the most practical thing. You have to learn how to live. To learn how to live rightly, you have to reckon with your end. This is why the early church, this is why for hundreds of years, it was a common Christian phrase for Christian brothers and sisters to greet each other by saying, frater, brother, memento mori, remember death. Like, live your life in light of eternity. Live your life in light of the end, in light of this moment, right? Brother, remember your death. I watched a... A documentary last year. I, I, I've really become. Uh, I've really grown to love golf. Um, I'm still terrible at it, but the uh, I, I love the game. Um, but I watched this documentary about Tiger Woods last year, and uh, it was really fascinating. Listening to Earl Woods, who was a crazy guy, Tiger Woods' dad, explain how he taught his son the game. He taught Tiger to play the game backwards. In other words, he taught Tiger like. 
All right. So here on this, this par four, par five, whatever it is, where do you need the ball to be on the green to make that, like to make a single putt? Okay, knowing that, where do you need the ball to be to chip it onto the green to make that putt? Okay, then where do you need the ball to be in the fairway to make that approach shot, to make that chip, to make that putt? Okay, then where do you need your drive to be to make that approach shot, to make that chip, to make that putt? So in other words, like he plays the game completely opposite that I do. I get up to the tee box and I'm like, like Bryson DeChambeau. I'm like, I'm going to hit this ball 800 yards. <laughs> All right, like I hit it as hard as I can. I'm like, I'm going to get a hole in one on a par five. Right? Like, why go for several strokes? I'm going to get it in one, right? Like Happy Gilmore style. Like, this is so much easier, right? So that's how I play the game. I like, go from the tee box to the green. He plays from the green to the tee box. He plays with the end in mind. That's how we need to live our lives, y'all. That's how we need to live our lives, with the end in mind, because it's coming, and you don't know when. You don't know when, right? So death, it doesn't make life meaningless. It's actually the thing that makes life so meaningful. It's the thing that gives the gravitas, the weight to it all, the fact that it's going to end. It gives significance to all, everything that we're doing. And here's the thing. Upon our death, there's no, like, redos. There's no, you know, like, Lord, let me just try and, like, explain myself. Well, let me try and go back and do that again. Let me try and love a little bit better. Upon our death, our will is fixed. What we chose to become in this life is what we are for eternity. Like, the envelope gets sealed upon our death. There's no, like, Lord, I really meant to. I really intended to. I really tried to. It's like, great. But what did you become? What did you become? All right, first C.S. Lewis quote coming at you. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the, mo the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a whore and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. This is the line. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom, with whom we joke, whom, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. So what he's getting at here is that like, like you're going to outlive the youngest galaxy, every person you know is going to outlive, like every mountain range will be turned to rubble long before you cease to exist because you're never going to cease to exist. You are an immortal being. Right? God has given you an immortal soul. He's saying that like, what we are destined to become, if you saw that now, here's a story. Teresa of Avila, you can hear about her later on. Teresa of Avila, she had this prayer, prayer experience where she was greeted by this soul in heaven and she immediately fell down flat on her face because she thought she was being greeted by the lord jesus himself he was that radiant that glorious that beautiful that overwhelmingly majestic and that soul that saint 
raised her up and said, no, 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 my dear sister, do not bow down to me. I am the soul bearing the least glory in all the communion of saints to you. Huh? And she was tempted to worship it because she was like, you must be the all-holy God. Like, what the heck does that mean? What the heck does that mean? In the end, C.S. Lewis says, in the end, there are two sorts of people. Those to whom God says, thy will be done, and those who say to God, thy will be done. That's how this works. You know the national anthem of hell is? What did you say? My way. My way. I did it. With me. My way. God's like, good for eternity. Goodbye. I tried. I told that to my kids last week. Oh, did you? Yeah. You're weird. That's expected. That's expected. Yeah. Another C.S. Lewis quote. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness and horror idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state uh, or, or the other. To one state or the other. So like, think of it this way. Like, if heaven is an aquatic environment, in this life we have to grow gills. If heaven is... God, if heaven is being united with God who is love himself, we have to become love. Every choice we're making, we're becoming more and more conformed, more and more conformed to the man of the cross, more and more conformed to love itself. Right? Every choice, we're becoming more and more like Jesus, cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Yes, Lord. Yes, 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 yes. Or we're saying no, 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 and becoming more and more twisted, more and more selfish, more and more broken, more and more isolated, right? We're going to talk about this when we talk about hell, but hell is not like this great frat party where you're just with every other troublemaker in history, right? Like doing shots with Nero and whatever other things, you know, all the rest of them. It's total isolation. It's hopelessness. It's endless torture it's it's being it's the end result of a life of choosing yourself and nothing but self so you get yourself for all eternity so our choices matter our choices matter the little choices the big choices all of it matters because it's how we like cooperate and become the kind of creature that is able to live in the environment of love for all eternity. Does this make sense so far? Yeah? Okay. All right, so what I want to do first is talk about our destiny, our, our goal, what we're meant to do. So uh, heaven. We're going to talk about heaven first. 
Because that's so much more enjoyable than talking about hell, right? We're saving hell for last. All right. I took this video on a flight uh, not too long ago. I was like, oh my gosh, isn't that incredible? Like we were just coming beneath one layer of clouds to this other layer of clouds. Remember the first time when I was a little kid, this is another picture from that flight. This was above those clouds, right? Remember when I was a little kid flying on airplanes, looking out the window, seeing something like this. You're like, like this has got to be, this is what heaven looks like, right? Like, where's all the angels, right? This is heaven. This is heaven. And like, there's something right about that intuition, right? And here's what's right about it. This is unspeakably beautiful. This is unbelievably beautiful. Like, do you realize that, like, how crazy it is that we human beings can see the sunset or sunrise from above the clouds? Like, unless you climbed a high mountain, right? For most of human history, no one saw that. It's like, it's unbelievably beautiful. It's so beautiful. And, like, heaven is not just, like, a beautiful thing. It is beauty itself. It's the endless ocean of beauty, right? But this is the thing. This is not, like, this is, this is like the little, 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 little glimmer of heaven. It's, this is the smallest, dullest, most, it's like that saint coming to Teresa of Avila, bearing the least amount of glory of God's glory, right? We, so many people, when I ask the kids in the school to describe heaven, so many of them describe this cloud city right like you got the streets of gold you got the pearly gates you got like basically like who's seen the movie inside out who anybody seen the pixar movie inside out you got cloud town from inside out y'all it's cloud town <gasps> that's my favorite <laughs> oh it's so soft oh, oh let me try hey what's the big idea you better fix that wall or else you're in big <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, you're saying your husband was blown away by an elephant. Was he with anyone? Yes, and there she is! Hey, come back here! Forget it, Jake. It's Cloud Town. Hello? <laughs> Forget it, kid. It's Cloud Town. This is, in some strange way, how so many people view heaven as, like... And, and, like, our Christian art hasn't really helped us in this, right? You got, like, all the fat little baby angels floating on their little clouds, right? Like, what? Right? Heaven is not cloud town. Heaven is not cloud town. I love this, uh, I love this quote from, from Peter Kreeft. No one longs for fluffy clouds and sexless cherubs, but everyone longs for heaven. No one longs for any of the heavens that we have ever imagined, but everyone longs for something no eye has seen, no ear has heard, Something that has not entered into the imagination of man. Something God has prepared for those who love him. See what he's saying? Like, like all of our images, all of our depictions of heaven, whether it's in movies or art or film or whatever, like, I don't even want any of those as beautiful as they are. I want something so much more than that. I want something so endlessly, infinitely more than that. The problem is like our human way of thinking our human like spatio-temporal categories absolutely break down when we're talking about heaven we can't help but think of heaven like a like a place like the room where god lives that's what so many of us think heaven's not the room or the city where god almighty dwells heaven is union with god and it's outside of space and time 
Now, I don't know about you, but everything I've ever experienced is in space and time. Is that true across the board? Right? Okay. That's not, that's not heaven, though. So all of our talking about it, it ultimately breaks down. Like, what are we even talking about? We're talking more. I, it's just always more. I want so much more. Heaven is not the room where God lives. Heaven is union with God. Heaven is being taken up into the very life, the very activity, the very creativity, the very power of what God is. I want to read from, from this book uh, from John Eldridge here. Um, where did I? There they are. There's a sign that I'm, er, I'm, I'm bound for the grave. I need reading glasses. Okay. So he starts off by quoting uh, from Job. Job, who basically asks God to explain yourself. The longest quote we have from God is in the book of Job. God goes on for pages and pages in the book of Job, um, basically telling Job off, like, you don't even know what you're talking about, man. So uh, let me start from here. You see, Job has come to the point where he wonders rather loudly whether God is on the job anymore. So much has gone wrong in Job's life. This is God's answer, and it goes on for two more chapters. The frost each morning, that's mine. The ostrich and hippo, mine too. I'm watching over the young doe when she gives birth. The eagle soars at my command. A jealous indignation characterizes these words, the sort of emotion that is aroused when someone criticizes our most cherished work. You see, it is God's delight to do all these things. Dallas Willard writes, we should, begin, we should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life and that he is full of joy. Undoubtedly, he is the most joyous being in the universe. The abundance of his life and generosity is inseparable from his infinite joy. All of the good and beautiful things from which we occasionally drink tiny droplets of soul-exhilarating joy, God continuously experiences in all their breadth and depth. We are enraptured by a well-done movie sequence or by a few bars from an opera or lines from a poem. We treasure our great experiences for a lifetime, and we may have very few of them. But he is simply one great, inexhaustible, and eternal experience of all that is good and true and beautiful and right. This is what we must think of when we hear theologians and philosophers speak of him as a perfect being. That is his life. Oh, like that's what we are taken up into. That's what we are united with. That is what we are united with. I want to read uh, one more passage here. Because something that I have only just kind of recently begun thinking about is like, again, that question, what are we going to do for all eternity? What are we going to do for all eternity? Has anyone else thought about that or wondered that? Okay. In Revelation 21, John describes the new Jerusalem, the city of God coming to earth. It is a place of exclusion.
It is a place of exquisite beauty and grandeur. And then he adds an odd statement. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. It seems hard to believe that we could add anything to the splendor of God, to the splendor God creates. But that is exactly what we are designed for and what our future involves. How amazing it will be to have our souls released into their true destiny in a world no longer stained by sin or under the curse. To throw ourselves into some wonderful enterprise, unhindered by our own weaknesses or the frustrations typical of a broken world. Gardeners dream of a spot of ground with rich soil and not a weed or sow bug to, to be found. They shall have it. Architects dream of the day they shall build their own designs and not merely carry out the plans of another. They shall. Like children eager to show off our precious creations, we shall bring them to our Father in Jerusalem for glory and praise. The grand affair heals the curse of isolation. The grand adventure heals the curse of futility. The glorious freedom of the children of God is the freedom of being all we were meant to be. We won't be held back by anything anymore. No, we will finally hit our stride. We all know the frustration of failure, of missing the mark, getting the equation wrong, hitting the ball into the rough, misdiagnosing the patient. And most of us at one time or another have tasted the joy of getting it right. Not only will we find our place, but we will be empowered to do the very things we aim to do with and for God. As C.S. Lewis quote, you have to quote him again. The miracles that have already happened are, of course, as the scripture often says, the first fruits of that cosmic summer which is presently coming on. Christ has risen, and so we shall rise. St. Peter, for a few seconds, walked on the water, and the day will come when there will be a remade universe, infinitely obedient to the will of a glorified and obedient men, when we can do all things, when we shall be those gods that, are, that we are described as being in Scripture. Y'all hear that? Y'all hear all that? <laughs> Part of the... Part of the journey of the Christian life is, is rediscovering desire in your heart, rediscovering like how deeply you long for things because this world beats hope and expectation out of us. Like it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable what God is promising us. Like what... He intends to fulfill every one of our heart's desires. It's unbelievable. So we are taken up into the very life of the Trinity. Remember last time when I was talking about marriage, marriage as the great sign, right? Oh, skip these guys, skip her. Okay, move ahead. Right, I talked about how the Trinity is this endless exchange of life. It's this endless, perfect bliss of glory and love. And this space right here is this invitation where you and I are invited into the very dance of the Trinity. That's where we're going. We're going into the very heart of it. Like, that's what we're talking about. God, who's this endless exchange of life and love. Just as a review from last time, right? He created our humanity, our masculinity and femininity to be the sign of his life-giving love, this dance of Trinitarian love, right? It's the sign of who God is. 
God has revealed his innermost secret, that God himself is an eternal exchange of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is the thing, right? Like, just take a second and drink that in. And he has destined us to share in that exchange. Like, the very power, the glory, the light, the very thing that made, like, Saturn and Jupiter and, like, the biggest of the stars, that very power that looked upon nothingness and said, let there be light, that God says, I want you to be with me for eternity. Like, what the heck? Like, you and I get stoked when we get invited over to somebody's, like, somebody cool's house for, like, a dinner party. Or, like, when I was in middle school, like, I got invited over to the cool kid's house. You are being invited into the very heart of God. I get it. It's too big. We can't even take it in. It's just like, uh, 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 like all right, I guess so. Cool. Let's go get Wendy's. <laughs> you know, like, What? The body, again, JP2, the body has been created to transfer into the visible realm of creation the invisible mystery hidden from eternity in God and thus to be a sign of it, right? The great sign, the great sign of human sexuality, of marital love, all of that is a little glimmer. It's a sign of the wedding feast of the Lamb. That's how the scriptures describe heaven as this wedding feast, being united to Jesus the bridegroom, united to the life of God, Right? Our sexuality is this incredible sign. It's this incredible sign. We have to learn to like open up our hearts, open up our longings. We have to learn how to open it all up to like love himself, to God himself. Because what so often happens is we attach our hearts and our desires to all these earthly things below, thinking you're going to satisfy me, you're going to satisfy me, you're going to satisfy me. The problem is you've got an infinitely big hole in your heart. And there's nothing but finite things around you. Even the person that you might be married to or in love with, that person is a finite person who's not going to infinitely satisfy that heart, right? Oh my gosh, so, so, so important. I think it takes some couples years to learn, oh, you can't satisfy me, (laughs) right? You, You can't satisfy the deepest longing of my heart. You're just a mortal. <laughs> like, you're just a human being. I'm looking for God. That was so cute, Tracy. <laughs> there, there, David. <laughs> oh, man. Our desires, though, our desires aren't bad. Our desires are meant to lead us to God, right? The word desire itself it's a very fascinating word. Those, of you, I mean, you know, I love etymology. Where words come from? It means several meanings: from the stars, or even to the stars. De sire, to the stars, from the stars. Our desires are meant to lead us to infinity and. Oh, thank you for playing. Right? They're meant to lead us to the Lord. They're meant to lead us to God. Right? You follow your desires all the way; they'll take you to God. They'll take you to God. And they actually come from God because they're like these homing beacons. He's like, come to me, right? The other thing, desire in French, anybody speak French? Means from the father, right? You say a a horse was sired by this person, this, this other horse, right? Our desires are also from the father, leading us back home, leading us back home. I want to show you a clip. Uh, Anybody a U2 fan? No, Chris loves U2. He loves you too so much. I like when they cover it up. 
<laughs> so this is this is a uh, this is from a concert from uh, a while ago, and you know it's from a while ago because no one in the audience has a smartphone like this, right? So it's like you know it's from like a century ago, basically. Um, so Bono, he's he's singing a song called "All I Want Is You." It's a song. He's he's it's about his love with his wife, right? You say you want a diamond on a ring of gold. You say you want our story to remain untold. All the promises we've made from the cradle to the grave. And all I want is you. He's singing about his wife. He's singing about his wife. There's a moment you're going to see in the song where Bono, he's like teaching 50,000 people in the stadium how to pray. He's teaching them how to take their desires, right? All I want is you. To then turn it towards the stars. All I want is you. You'll see the moment where he just like, hits that rocket engine or like he's flying down the runway right all i want is you then he like pulls back it's like to the lord all i want is you let's watch this
guess where it stops. Okay. That, you know, anyone know what that, that second song was that they transitioned into? Chris, I know you know, because you love them so much. Go ahead. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Right? What's, that's a song. He wrote that song. It's a song about heaven. It's a song about heaven, right? So look at that. Like, all I want is you to all I want is you, right? Like, do you see that moment where he's just like, ah! Like, he's just, like, crying out. Nobody, like, cracks open their heart with that longing, that ache, that, that no one owes like Bono, right? No one does the, oh, like him. Maybe Bruce. Bruce does it. He's a pretty good, oh, kind of guy, right? Now, here's this, right? So, like, in, in our faith as Catholics, in Advent, starting on December 17th for a few days before Christmas, we kick into this weird tradition thing that we have called the, what are they called? The O-antiphons. There are these ancient, like, little prayer pieces that get added to Mass, okay? And they all start with O, right? Like we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, right? O come, O, key, o come, key of David, O come, O Jesse, all these things, right? They all start with O, and we think it's like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, right? Like, <laughs> no, it's O! That's the O. That's the O of the O antiphons. Are you with me? Do you want me to do it again? <laughs> no! Like it's it's this cracking open of your heart, right? It's the it's the it's the longing for eternity. It's the longing for infinity. It's the longing for satisfaction, right? Like that's why Advent. It's not just this season of like getting ready for Christmas. It's the season of opening our hearts, longing for Christ to be the fulfillment of it all. The O the O antiphons are not like these prim and proper like. You know, high church, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, right? Like, it is, it's, you got to hear Bono or Bruce cracking open their hearts for the Oanophons, right? Because we have, we got a problem in our humanity. We've got in our hearts, like I said, this Grand Canyon-sized hole that's even bigger than the Grand Canyon that we're constantly trying to fill with marbles and rocks and pebbles. Can't do it. You can't do it. C.S. Lewis again. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're too, we're far too easily satisfied. Oh my gosh. Like, if you can't say amen, say ouch, right? Like, holy smokes, holy smokes. Pope Benedict in his encyclical on hope, Space Salvi, he talked about eternal life. He said, eternal life is an inadequate term that creates confusion. It's an attempt to give a name to that known unknown we all feel and ache for. Eternal suggests something like the unending succession of days as on the calendar, and the term life makes us think of our existence here and now. For many, to think of the toil of this life continuing eternally seems more like a curse than a gift. But he says eternal life is not the endless succession of days on the calendar, but something more like, get this, the supreme moment of satisfaction in which totality embraces us and we embrace totality. 
It's where, like St. Augustine says, you've made us for yourself, O Lord. Our hearts are restless until they rest in you. It's the place where our restless hearts find rest, where they're satisfied, where they're satisfied. I was, I was wrecked by this the other day. I was praying it with John's gospel, John 16. Let's see if I can find it. Oh, no, I have it right here. Jesus says this to his apostles. So you also are now in anguish, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. On that day, you will not question me about anything. Amen, amen, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now, you have not asked anything in my name. Ask and you receive so that your joy may be complete. Look, like, we hear that and we're like, it just kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you're at there, like, he says, no one's going to take your joy from you. I mean, that's the thing about joy, right? Like, I just got back from a vacation and it was amazing. It was so beautiful. We landed on the tarmac and it's gross and rainy and cold. And my joy was like, like sucked out of my heart like that, right? Everything in this life takes our joy from us. We have joy, and then it's gone. We have joy, and then it's gone. Right? Like, can you imagine what this actually means? No one and nothing will take your joy from you? Or can you actually imagine that Jesus actually means what he says when he says, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll give you. Some of us can't even imagine that because of, like, the families you grew up with like the dads we grew up with, where all we ever got was no. Or everything that, like, life only gave us no's. Can you imagine, like, having a father who says, what do you want? I'll give it to you. It's my delight to satisfy your desires. It's my delight to fill you with good things. You know, Mitchell's Ice Cream. Anybody ever know Mitchell's Ice Cream? Okay. It's a famous Cleveland ice cream place. Mitchell's Ice Cream has this company policy that you can sample as many flavors as you want. I tested it. Okay? (laughs) To an embarrassing limit one day, right? Like the line stretching out the door, and I finally get up there, and someone like someone told me you can get as many as you want. So I'm like, I'd like to try that one. She gets a little spoon. Whoop, here you go. It's pretty good. Not so sure. I'm going to try this one. I tried about seven. That was about my limit before I was just like, I can't possibly ask for another one, right? Like, I was, I, I was, I put the governor on myself. Like, I was the one who shut it down. Mitchell's was. They were just going to keep giving it to me. Like, that's the father's heart. He's like. What do you want? What do you want? Like, oh, no, I'll just take uh, mint chocolate chip and be on my way, right? It's like, you can have the store. I'll give you everything. I'll give you everything. That's heaven. But not really. (laughs) All right. Let's look at the next few. Purgatory. All right. Scripture is very clear when it says this in Revelation 21. Nothing unclean shall enter heaven. Niente, nothing. 
So here's the thing. How many of us do you think, how many of us do you suppose are going to be perfectly sanctified, perfect, finished products by the time we close our eyes on this world? Chris, Chris, maybe your wife. She'll be clinging to me. Yeah, I dare say most of us, probably when we die, we're, we will still have a little polishing to do. We still have a little work to do. Like, I'm, I'm pretty much most of us will need further purification in order to enter the gates of heaven after we die. Please, God, if we die in the state of grace, right? So here's the question. How, then, uh, does that which is unclean enter heaven? Purgatory. Purgatory. And it comes straight out of Scripture. It comes straight out of Scripture which is ironic because I'm going to first quote the Catechism. All right, just as a definition, right? All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their internal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Again, nothing unclean shall enter heaven. All right, so many people get confused thinking that purgatory is this sort of medieval doctrine that was invented to raise money for the church. No, it comes out of Scripture. It comes out of Scripture. Also, people think uh, that purgatory is like the waiting room for people. It's like the sort of limbo space that like maybe you're going to hell, maybe you're going to heaven. They just haven't called your number yet. No, that's not what purgatory is. Purgatory, uh, if you will, there's only one set of stairs in purgatory. And, uh, you know, think of the analogy. One set of stairs going up, right? There's not like down or up like you're just if you if you land in purgatory you're eventually going to heaven right you're eventually going to heaven um okay so jesus jesus says and whoever says a word against the son of man will be forgiven but whoever speaks against the holy spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come how curious how curious this declaration by our lord implies that there are at least some sins that can be forgiven in the age to come, right? There are some sins that can be forgiven in the age to come. Um, yeah. It's the place where, like St. Paul in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how all of our works will be tested by fire, right? It's where the place where every imperfection gets burned away, all the alloys, all of those imperfections get burned away. All of it gets tested by fire, he says. Or C.S. Lewis again. That's not C.S. Lewis. It's a kid covered in mud. (laughs) C.S. Lewis says this, though. Our souls demand purgatory, don't they? Would it not break the heart of God, break the heart, if God said to us, it is true, my son, that your breath smells and your rags drip with mud and slime, but we are charitable here, and no one will upbraid you with these things nor draw away from you. Enter into the joy. Should we not reply, with some with submission, sir, and if there is no objection, I'd rather be cleaned first. It may hurt, you know. Even so, sir. Right? Even so. Even so. Purgatory, I've always thought of it like the, in my house growing up, we had a mudroom. So like right before you came into, it's like where the laundry room was, where all the shoes were, the backpacks, all the stuff. It's like the gross room in the winter. Um, like this time of year, especially like playing in the snow and the muck, right? My buddies and I. We'd come in for hot chocolate. We'd be covered in junk. My mom would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, right? Stop. 
you have to take your jacket off, take this off, take your snow pants off, take your boots off. Take your... So like you're basically standing there in your long johns. He's like, okay, now you can come in, right? You had to strip first before you entered into the house, right? There's a stripping of the imperfections before you enter in. I, think, I love this image too, that purgatory is like, it's, it's the perfecting of our freedom. It's the perfecting of our freedom. Jesus has this beautiful uh, and powerful um, saying when he's talking about, can the rich, those with many possessions, enter the kingdom of heaven? He says, it's harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It'd be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about, right? What's he talking about? And on one hand, can a camel pass through the eye of a needle? Yes or no? No, unless you have a very big blender, okay? That's a joke, folks, okay? (laughs) Okay, so like, no, you can't. But there's another layer to this, too, that in the Semitic world, the ancient world, the eye of the needle was a very low, like, culvert in the city wall. That for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, the camel would have to take off all of the load that it had, right? So camels are, you know, pack animals, caravans, covered in all sorts of things. And to get through that thing, you'd have to take off all the things that had, it had been put on it. and have to, like, shimmy its way on through. It'd have to humble itself and strip itself. So, yes, it could pass through the eye of a needle if and only if it took all the stuff off and humbled itself, Right? Like, the door into heaven is the shape of the cross. It's the shape of Jesus, right? And so often people get to the door of heaven with all this stuff on them, and purgatory is the place where the angels and saints are on this side saying, just let go of it. Just, just let go. Drop it. And you can come in, right? It's the place where God is finally saying, let me show you what you actually want. It's the perfecting of our freedom, finally letting go of the things that we thought all our lifetime was going to satisfy us. It's like, no, no, no. That's not going to actually satisfy you. Let go of it and enter in. And God respects our freedom so much that he just lets us take our time. He lets us take our time. It's perfecting of our freedom. Um, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to have time for this because I want to leave. Well, I'm going to read this. This is, this is, a, um, this is from... Uh, the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. So The Great Divorce is not about divorce. Um, it's about heaven, hell, and purgatory. And a uh, little backstory here. So The Great Divorce, it's, it, the, the premise of the story is these, these ghosts, these souls who are in purgatory, they get to have this experience where they get, uh, they get to leave purgatory and visit the outskirts of heaven. Okay. They get to visit the outskirts of heaven. And they're being persuaded by all these angels and saints who come down from the mountains of heaven, down into the valley of the shadow of death, to meet these souls, to persuade them to let go and enter into the joy. Okay? So in this scene, we encounter this ghost who has this little friend on his shoulder, this red lizard, and you find out it's the lizard of lust, that this is the thing that has encumbered him, that it's weighed him down. This is the thing that he's just so unwilling to let go of. You can replace the red lizard of lust with all sorts of things. It's the thing that we have attached our hearts to, right? For so many in our modern world, it's the phone, right? 
It's the phone as Deacon Rich grabs his <laughs> precious, right? It's, this is our world, y'all, right? I mean, this is me trying to pray my holy hour. This is an actual picture of me trying to pray in the morning, by the way. <laughs> That's what it feels like. All right. Settle in. If it's easier for you to imagine it with your eyes closed, I encourage you to do that. I saw coming towards us a ghost who carried something on his shoulder. Like all the ghosts, he was unsubstantial, but they differed from one another as smokes differ. Some had been whitish. This one was dark and oily. What sat on his shoulder was a little red lizard, and it was twitching its tail like a whip and whispering things in his ear. As we caught sight of him, he turned his head to the reptile with a snarl of impatience. Shut up, I tell you, he said. It wagged its tail and continued to whisper to him. He ceased snarling and presently began to smile. Then he turned and started to limp westward away from the mountains. Off so soon, said a voice. The speaker was more or less human in shape, but larger than a man and so bright that I could hardly look at him. His presence smote on my eyes and on my body too, for there was a heat coming from him as well as light, like the morning sun at the beginning of a tyrannous summer day. Yes, I'm off, said the ghost. Thanks for your hospitality, but it's no good. You see, I told this little chap here, he indicated to the lizard, that he'd have to be quiet if he came, which he insisted on doing. Of course, his stuff won't do here. I realize that, but he won't stop. I shall just have to go home. Would you like me to make him quiet? Said the flaming spirit, an angel, as I now understood. Of course I would, said the ghost. Then I will kill him said the angel, taking a step toward. Oh, look Look out, you're burning me. Keep away, said the ghost, retreating. Don't you want him killed? You didn't say anything about killing him at first. I hardly meant to bother you. With anything as so drastic as that. It's the only way, said the angel, whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. Shall I kill it? Well, that's a further question. I'm, I'm quite open to consider it, but it's a new point, isn't it? I mean, for the moment, I was only thinking about silencing it because up here, well, it's just so damned embarrassing. May I kill it? Well, there's time to discuss that later, isn't there? There is no time. May I kill it? Please, I, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, don't bother. Look, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right now. Thanks ever so much. May I kill it? Honestly, I don't think that's the slightest necessity for that. I'm, I'm sure he'll be able to keep keep it in order now. I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. The gradual process is of no use at all. Don't you think so? Well, I'll think it over what you've said very carefully. I honestly will. In fact, I'd let you kill it now, but as a matter of fact, I'm not feeling frightfully well today. It would be most silly to do it now. I'd need to be in good health for the operation some other day, perhaps. There is no other day. All days are present now. Get back, you're burning me. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me too if you did. It is not so. Why, you're hurting me now. I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Oh, I know, you, you think I'm a coward, but it isn't that, really it isn't. I say, let me run back by tonight's bus and get an opinion from my own doctor. I'll come again the first moment I can. This moment contains all moments. Why are you torturing me? You're jeering at me. How can I let you tear me to pieces? If you wanted to help me, why didn't you just kill the damn thing without asking before I knew it? It would be all over by now if you had. I cannot kill it against your will. 
it is impossible. Have I your permission? The angel's hands were almost closed on the lizard, but not quite. Then the lizard began chattering to the ghost so loud that even I could hear what it was saying. Be careful, it said. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. Then you'll be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? You'd be only a sort of ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yes, I I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be so good. I admit I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh and almost innocent, you might say, quite innocent. Have I your permission, said the angel to the ghost. I know it will kill me. It won't, but supposing it did. You're right, it would be better to be dead than to live with this creature than I may. Damn it, blast you, go on, can't you? Get it over, do what you like, bellowed the ghost, but ended whimpering. God help me, God help me. Next moment, the ghost gave a scream of agony such as I never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted it while it bit and writhed and then flung it broken backed on the turf. Ah, it's done for me, gasped the ghost, reeling backwards. For a moment, I could make out nothing distinctly that I saw between me and the nearest bush, unmistakably solid, but growing every moment solider, the upper arm and the shoulder of a man. Then brighter still and stronger, the legs and hands, the neck and the golden head materialized while I watched. And if my attention had not wavered, I should have seen the actual completing of a man, an immense man, naked, not much smaller than the angel. What distracted me was the fact that at the same moment, something seemed to be happening to the lizard. At first, I thought the operation had failed. So far from dying, the creature was still struggling and even growing bigger as it struggled. And as it grew, it changed. Its hinder parts grew rounder. The tail still flickering became a tail of hair that that flickered between huge and glossy buttocks. Suddenly, I started back, rubbing my eyes. What stood before me was the greatest stallion I have ever seen silvery white but with mane and tail of gold it was smooth and shining rippled with swells of flesh and muscle whinnying and stamping with its hooves at each stamp the land shook and the trees dindled the new-made man turned and clapped the new horse's neck it nosed his bright body horse and master breathing to each other's nostrils the man turned from it flung himself at the feet of the burning one and embraced them When he rose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness. One cannot distinguish them in that country which flowed from him. I had not long to think about it. Turning in his seat, he waved a farewell, then nudged the stallion with his heels. They were off before I knew well what was happening. There was riding, if you like. There was riding, if you like. I came out as quickly as I could from among the bushes to follow them with my eyes. But already they were only like a shooting star far off on the, go- on the green plain, and soon among the foothills of the mountains. Then still like a star I saw them winding up, scaling what seemed impossible steeps, and quicker every moment till near the dim brow of the landscape, so high that I must strain my neck to see them, they vanished, bright themselves into the rose brightness of that everlasting morning. While I watched, I noticed that the whole plain and forest were shaking with a sound which in our world would be too large to hear, but there I could take it with joy. 
I knew it was not the solid people who were singing. It was the voice of that earth, those woods and those waters, a strange, archaic, inorganic noise that came from all directions at once. The nature or arch nature of that land rejoiced to have been once more ridden and therefore consummated in the person of the horse. It sang. Do you understand all this, my son, said my teacher. I don't know about all, sir, said I. Am I right in thinking that the lizard really turned into the horse? Aye, but it was killed first. You'll not forget that part of the story. I'll try not to, sir, but it does mean that everything, but does it mean that everything, everything that is in us can go onto the mountains? Nothing, not even the best and noblest can go on as it, as it now is. Nothing, not even what is lowest and most bestial will not be raised again if it submits to death. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Flesh and blood cannot come to the mountains, not because they are too rank, but because they are too weak. What is a lizard compared with a stallion? Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared to that richness and energy of desire, which will arise when lust has been killed. <sighs> How good is C.S. Lewis and God and purgatory and all of those things. I love, I love it. His, his beautiful creative imagination. He teaches the truth of the faith that everything gets transformed. Everything has to get burned away. And it's a painful process and it gets burned away and purified. And I love that line. Like everything that we are now it's not capable of entering into going to the mountains, going to heaven, not because it's too low or gross, but as he says, it's too weak. It's got to be transformed. It's got to submit to grace. It's got to submit to the cross. It's got to submit to God. Ah, so good. So, so, so good. All right, let's land it with a discussion about, oh, there's the stallion. Oh, yeah. And there's the mountains. I'm telling you, The Great Divorce is so good. It is, it's one of the best books of all time. I was reading it, uh, well, listening to it, read in my car the very first time. I got to this one section at the end, and he talks about um, wanting to go back into hell to tell the other ghosts of the like, hell town, the purgatory town, like, you got to let go. You got to let go and come to the mountains. And the saint and the soul and his teacher, he's, he tells him, you can't fit there now. He, takes a, he grabs a little blade of grass from heaven and he reaches down and he points a little crack in the sidewalk and he says, that right there, like that's, that's where you came from. Like hell is this tiny nothingness compared to the massiveness of, of heaven. Unbelievable. All right, let's talk about hell. We know the most about hell from Jesus himself which is odd. Um, in the scriptures, Jesus speaks about hell more than just about anybody else. What we know about hell comes from him. Jesus said, Wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many there are that find it. But narrow is the gate that leads to salvation, and those who find it are few. See, our modern minds, like Jesus is essentially saying, this is the path that many take that leads to destruction. That's the path that many take that leads to salvation. Our modern minds, our modern culture have completely inverted it. 
Right? Our modern culture said, wide is the way that leads to salvation, narrow the path that leads to damnation. Right? We basically, in our culture today, think that you've got to be like a Hitler or like a Mussolini to go to hell. You've got to have a mountain of corpses to warrant hell. That's not what Jesus says. That's not what Jesus says. So what does that mean? Does that mean that like, most people go to hell? Like, How many are going to be saved? Isn't it just like the murderers and the uh, people who start you know, genocide? Aren't they the ones who go there? Is hell empty or is it packed? When Jesus was asked those questions, he didn't answer it. Like when his apostles said, are many going to be saved? He didn't say, well, about uh, 23%. He didn't give them a number. He said, like, that doesn't help you. Like, heaven, hell statistics don't help you. He says, Jesus' response was basically, like, forget that. He says, you strive to enter through the narrow gate. Like, you strive Worry about you. You strive to enter in. That's what he says. And here's the math for Jesus. Like one lost sheep for the good shepherd. He says, shepherd has 100 sheep. One goes missing. Leaves the 99, go find the one. Like in my world, 99% was an A plus every day of the week, right? In Jesus' world, one lost sheep is one sheep lost too many. He goes after the one, right? That's good news. See, hell, it follows from two other doctrines that we have. First, the doctrine of heaven and the doctrine of free will, okay? So if there's a heaven, there can also be a opposite or a not heaven, right? If there's heaven, there can be not heaven. And if there's free will, if it takes our free will to enter into heaven, we can abuse our free will and choose to exclude ourselves from heaven. Here's the thing. Hell is not, no one is condemned or sent to hell by God. Hell is chosen by people, which sounds crazy. Like, why would anybody choose hell? I got a very weird window into this this past week when I was on my vacation. We were in Scottsdale. You may have heard about this, but the very first Satan convention happened in Scottsdale while I was there on vacation. Yeah. Like, it's me and four, three priests, about 500 Satanists around the world. Hello, hello. We didn't go to it, if you're wondering. <laughs> What's up, guys? What are you doing here? <laughs> Ever heard about the other guy? <laughs> He's pretty great. But like, hell is the result of choosing, like I said at the beginning, hell is the result of choosing against God for the entirety of our lives. Hell is a room that's locked from the inside. It's locked from the inside. What is it? It's the state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and with the blessed. <clears throat> I just want to emphasize this word, definitive, definitive, right? Definitive. Like, you've chosen it. You've chosen this state of being separated from God and separated from love for all eternity. But you, you can't help but be a creature that was made for love. And you're def- you're you're excluded from it from all eternity. Hell is not, as C.S. Lewis says, hell is not eternal life with torture, but something far worse. He says it's eternal dying. What goes to hell is not a man, but remains. It's not, like I said, an eternal frat party. Steven Tyler, he was toasting 
Howard Stern at his birthday party. He said, may we have as much fun in hell as we did getting there. Which is so stupid. It's like, bro, you aren't, you're not going to have fun. You're not going to have fun. The thing about it is that it's really possible for us to go there. It's really possible for us to go there. And there's no conversion. There's no escape. There's no end. There's no satisfaction. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's no community. There's nothing except isolation. The uh, Dante, who wrote the Divine Comedy, it's this whole journey through purgatory, heaven, and hell. He depicts hell not as this fiery wasteland. He depicts hell as this icy, cold place, which in my book is a way better image of hell. (laughs) Like those frigid, cold, dead winters that we have that are just gray and endlessly lifeless. He He depicts hell as this ever-narrowing space that the very pit of hell is the devil trapped in his chest in ice. He's got three faces and he's endlessly sobbing in these three faces. And he's got these big old bat wings and they're flapping like with such futility and his flapping creates the cold atmosphere of hell. The hell's not a warm party, it's utter isolation. It was Hans Urs von Balthasar Swiss theologian who said that in the afterlife, whether it's heaven, purgatory, or hell, there's only one kind of fire. It's the fire of God's love. And the same fire that fills the saints with joy in heaven, that's the fire that purifies souls in purgatory. It's the fire that, like, tortures souls in hell. It's the fire of God's love. All right. We got, like, a few minutes for questions. So... Let's just end with a prayer, and then we'll do some questions. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, you've made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Lord, you are so good, and you desire to satisfy our hearts. You desire to bring us home. That's what heaven is. It's home. All the angels and saints, they're cheering for us to go home. This is not our home. We're pilgrims passing through. Teach us, Lord, to use the things of this life in a right way that will lead us to you. Teach us to train our hearts and open them to seek the satisfaction of our hearts only in you. Mary, teach us how to welcome heaven even now. Let's pray the Hail Mary together. If you need the page in the little booklet, I don't know the page number, but we all can probably pray it. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. We have a few petitions. Yeah, go for it. We're going to intercede for Barb Nixon, that she has the strength to continue to recover. And we lift her up to you. We pray for the family of Randy Evans as we mourn this tragic loss. We pray for Darla, that she makes a swift and complete recovery. And she can join us very soon. Lord, we lift them up to you, Lord. What's that? Oh, and the Sorrent family, yeah. Lord, we lift all these needs up to you, knowing that you will meet them, satisfy them, grant them in your way and in your time if it's for our good. Amen.
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, y'all. So uh, we got like just a few minutes. So any questions? I mean, it's just like the tip of the tip, like the first top three molecules of the iceberg we covered here tonight. So, Holly. <laughs> what a cool image, yeah. So it's not a special anointing. It's a special prayer that gets added onto the anointing. So the, um, the prayer is called the apostolic pardon. So the, the priest, we are, we are granted uh, the power to do uh, from the apostolic see, so from the Pope himself, which is it's this incredible gift um, that the prayer that we pray basically removes what the church calls all temporal punishment due to sin, and basically, it's, it's, it's like, it's the nuclear option in the soul, wiping it all clean, giving this unbelievable amount of grace and mercy, and that person, upon their death, goes straight to heaven. Which sounds like, like, does that seem fair? Like, I don't know. I don't, fair is not even a word that I understand in God's grace in that world. But like, like, the... The Lord, in his like crazy ways, in his unbelievable mercy, so desirous to find lost sheep, has given the church these incredible means of bringing and reconciling souls, even at those last moments, especially death. Um, yeah, so that, like, that prayer is the reason why you want a priest at your bedside when you're dying. Yeah, you <laughs> if, the, if a priest can get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if someone's if someone's dying, right? So, I I wouldn't pray the apostolic pardon over someone before they're having like, you know, you can you can get anointed before surgery. You can get anointed um, as as health is declining. You also can get anointed at the like at the penultimate at the very end. Um, oftentimes, the apostolic pardon is given when someone's like unconscious unresponsive they're they're in they're, yeah they're in the dying process um so like if i if i'm called to the bedside of someone who is dying i give the apostolic pardon yeah yes yes yeah yeah i've, I've always I've, I've been so blown away every time i've done it just thinking that like so often, obviously, so often for the people that I'm anointing, at this point in my journey as a priest, these are people that are much older than me, right? And, like, before ever I was born, they were probably praying these prayers and, like, praying the rosary, asking for the grace of a holy death. And, like, it's unbelievable that I get to be the one who's the instrument of that. Like, ah, it's just crazy. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah, that was, yeah. So it, what he's saying is it's the, it's not like, like if you diss the Holy Spirit, then that, like the Holy Spirit's like super sensitive. If you like say something mean about the Holy Spirit, he's like, I am not forgiving you, right? Like, like that's not what it is. 
It's the, um, basically, if you stop, if you, if you choose to, like, not avail yourself of mercy through the grace of the Holy Spirit, like, the only sin that cannot be forgiven is the sin that's not asked, like, that you do not ask forgiveness for, right? So, like, grieving the Holy Spirit is turning yourself away from the Holy Spirit, right? That's what he's saying. Like, um, yeah, like, everything is forgivable, except the things that you don't ask forgiveness for, right? Like by turning yourself away from the source of forgiveness, you're, you're putting yourself in a state of unforgivableness. So that's what he's saying. Like, it's not like that's the one thing that if you tick off the Holy Spirit, then he's like, oh, you, you can say anything about my father about me, but you can't talk about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the whole idea. Does that make sense? Okay. Can you mention something just briefly about how our prayers can yeah okay so like that's like asking how does time work in heaven kind of is what you just asked me a little bit too right because like i don't know how that totally works uh but here's what we know that the church is composed of more than just the living people on earth right now right we have the church we're called the church militant right we are the church still battling still on the way still working out our salvation we are the church on the way church militant so like mortals making their journey you have the church suffering which is the souls in purgatory right who are being purified and you have the church triumphant those are the souls in heaven and glory all of it is part of the body of christ right we have the whole body of christ jesus is the head we are the body um so just like in this life where we believe that prayer affects like each other, right? We're, we're connected to each other as members of the body of Christ. You ask me to pray for you. I pray for you. We believe that those prayers have an effect. So too, we believe that we can pray for the souls who are in purgatory, like praying that they would, you know, like let go of the thing, submit to the slaying of their red lizards. Like we believe that our prayers can have an effect on their journey towards the mountains, if you will. How the physics of that works spiritually, I have no idea. Right? It's, all, it's also one thing that, obviously, private revelation is, you know, it's not binding on us to believe, but it's so overwhelming. People like Teresa Babylon, people like St. Faustina, people like Padre Pio that have purportedly had these, like, they all say the same thing about it. I mean, they are, there are so many people that are in tune with the church suffering and mm-hmm. by souls. Like it, it just, it's overwhelming for our Christian literature. So I think that adds some credence to like, oh, it's not like one person said this in 1522. You know, there seems to be a lot of evidence that there's really something to it. You might be talking about that in the weird Catholic stuff night. Yes. If we, if we, if we get to do that. Yeah. Okay. All right, we're a little bit over time, so let's land the plane. Well, let's thank Father Pat for his great presentation.